My assigned task for the moment now is to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, it, before I do that, though, I just would like to welcome you to uh, worship with us this morning. I see a lot of uh, new and old faces, and uh, word must have gotten out that I wasn't preaching, and uh, you have come, so we're thankful that you're here. In particular, this morning, I want to welcome Robin Talmadge. Robin has returned from her year of ministry in South Korea, and she is here with us this morning, and it's good to see her uh, today. Now, something else that you should know about somebody in our congregation, Hannah Brown. Hannah Brown plays field hockey on the Penn Manor field hockey team, and she's good at it. This is her senior year, and they had a wonderful season. They were undefeated, and it culminated yesterday in the state championship yesterday for the field hockey team. So congratulations, Hannah. We're a little sad she didn't wear her medal to church today, but that's all right. I'm sure if you ask, she'll show it to you sometime. Now, uh, it's my privilege this morning to introduce uh, Herb Samworth. He is here with us this morning. Uh, He asked me, when I asked him to preach uh, several months ago today, he said to me, you can't introduce me as the founder of this church. So I'm introducing today not the founder of our church. But he was the first pastor, and he served from 1974 to 1997, 23 years. It's a long time. So far, he has the record for the longest ministry in our congregation. Uh, many of the things that you value and that you like about our church were things that values that Herb had and that he set down in our congregation. Our love for missions, our commitment to uh, preaching the scriptures, uh, our desire to do things with integrity and uprightness, those are Herb's values, and he set them in our church. Anything that you don't like about our church has happened since he left, so <laughs> just keep that in mind. Uh, it is also uh, my, my privilege, I, have, uh, you know, I followed uh, Bob Smith, who followed uh, Herb Samworth. Um, there are many pastors who have to go into churches and fix situations. They have to fix things that their predecessor has done. Sometimes they have to fix explosions that their predecessor has introduced in the congregation. And that was uh, never a a challenge or an issue that I faced. In fact, I stepped into a groundswell of uh, respect and love that I all inherited from Herb Samworth. So uh, it is a great privilege for us to uh, welcome him back and have him preach to us this morning. Let us, as the servant of God comes to open the word of God to us this morning, let us commit ourselves to be not just hearers of the word, but doers as well. Well, as you can imagine, when you stand here, a lot of thoughts go through your mind. Uh, Good thoughts, uh, looking at the past, but we do live in the present. And if you noticed on the front of the bulletin, uh, we're living in particularly unsettled times. And I count it a privilege to be with you this morning. Uh, I I thank uh, Pastor Divinity. Divinity. That's a new name, right? (laughs) Maybe he wants to be called Mr. Divinity. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? Well, now that I've made that mistake, I'll see how many more I can make. Uh, But uh, it is really a privilege, and it is wonderful to see God's work going on. That is really exciting to see 
uh, God's people continuing to serve. But we do uh, live in some difficult times, and I'd like to uh, bring a message to you to encourage you. Uh, I think we all can use encouragement. Is that not true? We live in a world that's filled with negativity. And to illustrate that, I don't know if you've ever heard of a man whose name was Eustace de Champs. I would really be surprised if you would, since he lived back in the 1300s. But this man was known as the greatest pessimist in the pessimistic age. Now think of that. He lived through a time when they experienced a lot of turmoil. For one thing, he lived during a time that was called the Hundred Years' War. It was between England and France. Why was it called the Hundred Years' War? It lasted a hundred years. So he lived through that. He also lived through a period of time when the bubonic plague came through Europe. He was from France. And many, many people died. He also lived in a time uh, when the peasants were revolting. And there was not only war between England and France, there was also internal warfare and peasants' uh, uprisings. And then perhaps to cap it all off, uh, he was a member of the church at that time. It would be known to us as the Roman Catholic Church, but most everybody belonged to it. And there were great, great problems there. For one thing, the papacy had moved from Rome and was now in France. Then later, they elected two popes. So you can imagine some of the things through which this man went. Turmoil on every side. Difficulty. Problems. And you know, it's a lot like today. It's uh, some of the problems, difficulties, the turmoils, we begin to wonder what is going on. Well, this is nothing new for the people of God. So I invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Hebrews. Because we're going to be talking about a group of people that face some difficult times as well. And to give you a little bit of background in this book, which will be necessary for us to understand what the writer is uh, giving to the people. Let me just fill you in on what was taking place. He is writing to Hebrew Christians. It is approximately the year, let's say, A.D. 65. We're not sure who the author was. Some say it was Paul, some say it was others, but we don't really know. But he's writing to Hebrew Christians who were facing a difficult time. They had placed their faith in Christ, and the newness, the excitement had somewhat worn off because they were being oppressed. Things were not turning out as they had hoped. Have you ever experienced that? You have great hopes. Things look wonderful, and then, boom, they all seem to fall to the ground. Well, these are, what, these are some of the things that the Hebrew Christians were facing. And so there was the temptation. There was the pullback. Well, this, we've tried it. It hasn't worked. So let's go back to the old religion. Let's go back to the worship of God that was given in the law of God. And what did that mean? Well, it meant worshiping at a magnificent temple whereas they were worshiping by themselves. 
It meant a great high priest and all that was involved. And so they were tempted to withdraw and go back, and they were discouraged. And I would not be surprised if that, is, that might be some of the things that people today are facing. Well, it isn't working. Things aren't turning out the way I expected, and I'm somewhat downcast. And here we're entering into what week of the year? The week of Thanksgiving. And we are supposed to be uh, excited and thankful for all that God has done. But yet within our hearts, we're wondering, where is God? What has he done? Well, here is the situation. And here is what the author of the book is telling them. First of all, they have to remember the benefits and the privileges they have. What he does in this book to counter this is to tell them this fact. Regardless of what you have had, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And he'll use that theme. But he uses it in a sense that's not a comparative. If I would say that Penn Manor High School's field hockey team was better than whoever they played, I'm not sure who they played, uh, that's a comparative. There's two teams that were there. But when the author of the book of Hebrews uses the comparative, he means the superlative. It means when he says Jesus is better, it's not as though he's comparing him with uh, some other individual. He's saying to to the people to whom he's addressing, he is infinitely better. He is infinitely better. Well, To whom is Jesus infinitely better? Well, three things that were very prominent in the Hebrew religion. Number one was angels. If you notice the structure of the book, the first contrast that he makes is between Jesus and the angels. Why is Jesus infinitely better than the angels? Angels had a very important role in the life of the people of God. They were at the... Mount Sinai when the covenant with God was made. But this is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Jesus is infinitely better than the angels because while they are ministering servants to help those who are recipients of salvation, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he has redeemed us. He's infinitely better than the angels. The second contrast he makes is between Jesus and Moses and Joshua. Moses was a great man. He was a wonderful man. He wrote the first five books of Scripture. But why is Jesus infinitely better than Moses? Simply because while Moses brought the people out of Egypt from slavery, physical slavery, Jesus has redeemed us from the slavery of sin. He is infinitely greater. Moses was a wonderful man, but only Jesus can redeem us from sin. And Joshua, why is Jesus better than Joshua? Joshua introduced the people into Canaan, the land of rest. That was a physical rest. But Jesus introduces us into spiritual rest, spiritual rest. contemplation of God and what he has done. And then the third contrast he makes is between Jesus and the high priest. 
It is said by many that the high priest was the most important person in the life and ministry of the nation of Israel. And he had a very important role. And especially on the tenth day of the seventh month. That is known as Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. It was that day when the high priest and he alone was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies and make intercession with blood for the sins of the people. That was a wonderful, wonderful, uh, wonderful time because it showed that God had passed over their sins for that year. But Jesus is infinitely greater than the high priest according to the order of Aaron. Why so? Because he did not enter into a place made with hands. He went into heaven itself. His sacrifice was better. The sacrifice offered by the high priest was of bulls and goats. The sacrifice that Jesus offered was his own blood. He is also the mediator of a better covenant. The covenant that God made with his people at at Sinai was wonderful, but it was engraven on tablets of stone. The covenant that God makes with you and me today is when he takes his laws and writes them not on tables of stone, but on our very hearts. He is infinitely better. His priesthood is better. And he continues as a priest forever, whereas the priests under the order of Aaron were limited by death. So this is the background to what the writer is saying here. Now, if your Bibles are open to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, what I've given you is just an overview of the first 10 chapters up to chapter 10, verse 18. Now, he begins to apply this. This is application. And he's writing to people that need to hear the word of God. They need a word of encouragement. So what does he say? Therefore, brothers and sisters, verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and then he goes on and gives us some admonitions. So what I would like to do as we look at this passage is to first of all, to give you a reason or a uh, purpose why we should have confidence, and then three practical applications of that, or three practical ways that we are to do this, and then some words of application. So let's turn our attention here to uh, the first uh, point in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. Now notice what he says. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we, the render to the Hebrews is identifying himself with the people of God, with the people that are facing these difficult times. He says, I'm not better. I'm not just standing at an uh, elevated position and speaking down to you. I'm with you in this. Therefore, since we have confidence. Now, Let me change the the translation here a little uh, because I'm not sure that 
the NIV brings it out exactly the way that the writer to the Hebrews originally said. We're not here to correct scripture, but I want you to understand what he's saying. What he's saying is this. We have confidence that Christ has entered into the holy place. Where is Jesus today? The people to whom the writer was addressing this letter were living on earth. They worshiped the Lord Jesus. But where is he? Where is our Lord? He is in heaven. He is in the holy place, the most holy place. How did he get there? Well, he gives us a review of the work of Christ. He went there through his own blood. He is at the holy place. And again, remember the imagery, the contrast, the comparison. He is comparing him with the great high priest, or the high priest under the order of Aaron. The high priest or the order of Aaron on the Day of Atonement would go into the holy place of an earthly tabernacle. But Jesus has gone into the very presence of God himself. And the priest, under the order of Aaron, would take the blood of bulls and goats. The Lord himself presented his own blood, infinite value. So he has placed that or has put that in the most holy place. And it is a new and living way that is open to us. My dear friends, if we could just understand how great a salvation we have and how great a Savior we have, I believe our lives would be different. Different. We need to understand how great he is, how wonderful he is, what he has done, and how great is our salvation. Perhaps you have studied the life of Paul like I have, and you know somewhat of this man, a Pharisee, converted on the road to Damascus, and for we don't know how many years, faithfully served the Lord in so many different places and ways. What is the key to Paul's life? I believe it was this. Not that he was brilliant, which he was. Not that he was courageous, which he was. Not that he had a tremendous uh, a character which he had. I believe it was this. That the Apostle Paul fell in love with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he never got over that. Let me address a word to you husbands. For as long as, you mar- as you've been married. Are you still in love with your wife? Do you love her more? Well, you say, well, of course I do. Well, that should be just a thing, thing, representation of our love for the Lord Jesus. And if there is a key to the Christian life, it is to fall in love with Jesus and serve him all your life. Why? Because he's worthy. Because of what he has done for you. Because of the greatness of this salvation. And so he's, he's saying to the, the people here, he's saying to these uh, Hebrews, listen, we have a great high priest. He is in heaven. He's gone there. He is pr- praying for us. He has dealt with our sins. And we are to be encouraged. Now, 
We have a great high priest. He is over the house of God. Now, if that is the fact, what are we to do then? He gives us three basic things that we are to do. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What's the first thing? It's just simply this. If we're to cultivate a thankful spirit, if we're to be the people that God wants us to be in this generation, and if there ever were a generation on the face of the earth that needs to see a true demonstration of Christianity, would you not agree with me this generation needs it? And if they are ever to see a true demonstration of the truth of Christianity, who's going to show it to them? We're going to show it to them. They're not going to find it any other place. Well, what about this? What about this? What, what is needed? I think it is just simply this. Let us draw near. Now notice what he says here. He does not give them an admonition and say, you need to draw near. He says, let us. He identifies himself with these people. And that is extremely important because it tells us the nature of the Christian life. The nature of the Christian life is that it's lived in communion. How many of you have ever heard of a, I used, when I was a boy, used to hear a radio program that was called The Lone Ranger. How many of you have ever heard of The Lone Ranger? Uh, I figured you're all too young, okay. (laughs) The Lone Ranger, the masked man and all that, you know, and the galloping William Tell overture and all that sort of thing. Well, let me say this. The Christian life, is not the life of the Lone Ranger. A person who is self-sufficient, a person who can do it himself. The fact of the matter is, you are not going to make it in the Christian life without your fellow Christians. I am not going to make it in the Christian life without my fellow Christians. It is the way that God has ordained the Christian life And the great illustration that he uses in scripture is the illustration of the body. You see, every member, every organ of the body is critical for the health of the body. The heart cannot get along without the lungs. And I've I've used this illustration before. I don't think I've used it here. But I was meditating the other day. And my heart began to speak to me. And my heart said, you know, you're a certain number of age. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. But you know, I've never had a day off. I've had to work 24-7, 365 for as number of years as you've, you've lived. And I need a break. And I'm tired. And so... I really feel that I am not appreciated as I should be. You don't talk about how good I am and how good a job I've done for you. And I'm just tired of it. And so this is what I've decided to do. Now, this is the heart speaking. 
I'm going to take the next two weeks off. And I'm going to see how you're going to do without me. What do you think of that? Well, what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to die. But remember this. So is the heart. The heart is going to die. The heart finds its health in doing its job. The heart keeps itself healthy by beating 24, 7, 365. You see, people are tempted to draw back and I'm not appreciated and I'm, I'm tired. Well, I think we need rest. I think we need to refresh ourselves. But healthy Christians keep going. Healthy Christians keep working. So what is Paul saying? We, or excuse me, I gave away the writer to the Hebrews, didn't I? No, I'm not sure it was Paul. Uh, but, but he's saying, if you, let's draw near in full assurance, full assurance, with our hearts spring, with our hearts cleansed from an evil conscience. Keep short account with God. Walk in holiness of life. Holiness of life is not an option for Christians. It is a requirement. And so the, the writer to the Hebrews is reminding of that. So the, the faith that we have. But then notice in verse 23, he talks about the hope that we have. It's not only we have faith and unfeigned faith, fullness of faith. We have a hope. I remember buying a book a number of years ago. And on the cover was a very interesting picture. It was a young lady that was seated at a table. And it was early in the morning because you could see the rays of the sun beginning to come through the mirror. And she is disconsolate. She is leaning over a table and someone has placed her... um, arm on this young lady and is seeking to uh, console her. But I never forgot the name of that painting. The name of that painting is called The Hopeless Dawn. The Hopeless Dawn. That's not true of the Christian. We have a hope. What is a hope? It is the present reality of the future expected good. We have a hope. Our hope is sure. We have that as an anchor of the soul. Notice what he says. If we are to be thankful in these times, if we're to find the reality of what God has for us, we must have unfeigned faith, but we must also have this hope without swerving, without changing. Hold on to it. The hope of the Christian is secure. It's not, I wish so, maybe so. It's absolutely sure. Aren't you glad of that? The hope that we have. It's not some ethereal thing that will fade away. It's truth. What is the hope? The return of our Lord Jesus Christ and that he will be, we will be with him. But while we're here on earth, that hope should be part of our of the reality that we're experiencing. It's part of your, your inheritance as a Christian. So we have faith. We have hope. 
And then he also says in verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In other words, he is saying, let's be an encouragement. Some versions use the word provoke. Now, provoke in the English language usually carries more of a negative sense, someone bothering another person, provoking another person. But that's not the word, the idea that the writer to the Hebrews is using here. He's saying, as Christians, let's help one another. Let's encourage one another. We're together. We're part of the body of Christ. We need one another. And that other person isn't going to make it unless I help him, and I'm not going to make it unless that other person helps me. Now that is so different. So different from the Lone Ranger mentality and the uh, mentality that I can do it on my own. You can't do it on your own because God has never designed for you to do it on your, by yourself. He has so designed the Christian life and so ordered it that we are members of one another. We help one another. We encourage one another. And we need to do that. And the... And the Failure or the lack or to the degree that we don't do that results in not being able to be the people that God wants us to be. So let us do that. Let us have an unfeigned faith, a genuine faith. Let us have a living hope and let us show love one to another by encouraging and helping one another. Well, how does this all come together then? And this is the third point. Notice what he says in verse uh, 25. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Now immediately uh, if a pastor or a preacher mentions this, people are thinking, oh he wants us to come to church. That's what he wants. He wants us to come to the services of the church. Well that's part of it, but that's not the whole point. The whole point is we should be seeking times of mutual encouragement and help and means of encouraging one another. Do they take place in worship services in the churches? Yes. But they also can take place outside of the walls of this church. But the idea is when we fail to take advantage of these opportunities that are presented to us, then we weaken the body. And this is exactly the temptation that the Hebrew people had. They were tempted to withdraw. They were tempted to slack off, as it were. They were tempted to uh, fail to meet their obligations. And so the result was, notice as he says here, there, is, there are those that are in the habit of doing it. But, encouraging one another, encouraging one another, and much more as you see the day approaching. Now for the Hebrews, a day was approaching. Some have said, I believe it was G. Campbell Morgan said, that the book of Hebrews was God's last word to his people because within a few years that city of Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Romans. And the Jewish system would be completely broken up. 
And so the day was approaching. But for the Christian, for us today, there is a day that's approaching. A day when the Lord is going to return or we're going to meet the Lord. Two things are absolutely certain. Either the Lord's going to come or we're going to go meet him, right? Those things are certain. And that day's approaching. And we're to live in the light of that day. That day is coming. Rather than being discouraged, disconsolate, rather than being pessimistic, we want to be absolutely optimistic. Your future is secure. You have a great high priest. He is in heaven. He is interceding for you today. Every thought that's in your mind, he knows about. Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ at this moment is praying for every one of us here in this room? Great high priest, he's praying. And he prays as only he can pray. Because he's man, he knows the temptations that we have. He knows the discouragement. And because he's God, his prayers will be answered. We have a great high priest. So, should I be thankful this Thursday? Well, I should be thankful all the time, I know that. But is there any reason... Well, obviously, there can be other reasons for health, for family, for the Lord's provision. And there are proper things for which to give thanks. But the greatest is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I'll never forget a day that occurred. Now, Maybe you want to just hold on to the sides of your pews when I mention this date. But it occurred in 1973, and I'll never forget it. I was in Lima, Peru, and from time to time, I would go to what was called the American Cultural Association. And that was a place that was in the city of Lima, and you could go there to read newspapers. That may not sound exciting to you, but it was to me. We were away from our home country, and the American Cultural Center Society subscribed to the Miami Herald. And I would go in from time to time and read the newspaper. But I'll never forget, it was, I believe, January of 1973, and uh, we had been in Peru a number of years and so forth, And I picked up the headlines, or I picked up the paper, and saw the headlines. It was the time when a number of prisoners that had been taken captive in the Vietnam War were released. Many of these were uh, airmen, pilots, and others that had been shot down and had been uh, imprisoned in North Vietnam for a number of years. Some of them, five, six, maybe seven years. And some of those people I'm sure you're acquainted with. Senator John McLean was such a person. And these men were released. And so they came, I believe, back to the United States. And they got off the plane. And the spokesman 
gave a word for them, one of the prisoners, and he spoke for the prisoners. And this is what he said. And I'll never forget these words. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve our country in difficult times. Now think for a minute. Think of what it cost those men to say those words. These were men that had endured imprisonment. Some endured beatings. Some endured, well, all endured separation, loneliness, careers in tatters. For some, they lost families. They lost all the things that were valuable to them. And yet they could say, we are grateful. We are thankful for the opportunity to serve our country in difficult times. I don't know if I could have ever said that. I don't know if I could. But if it's true of those persons, and we give them the highest respect imaginable, that we're willing to be thankful, to be beaten, to suffer the loss of careers, to suffer broken health, and other things because there was something greater than their personal happiness. And that was fidelity and service to their country. Well, if they could have done that, is it not possible for you and me, who are citizens of the heavenly country, who have a great high priest over us, and we do live in difficult times, But I wonder, is it possible at this Thanksgiving to cultivate a spirit and say, Lord, I thank you that you have put me in this situation, in this time, so that I might glorify your name. Is that possible? Can we do that? We have a great high priest. He's over the people of God. He's praying for us. He's He'll encourage us. Whatever we lack, he'll supply. Can we do that? You see, Paul also mentioned this. And I'll just have you turn very quickly. You don't have to. But in the book of Philippians, and when Paul wrote Philippians, Paul was in prison. He was in a Roman imprisonment. It was probably a house imprisonment, not the last imprisonment at the Mamertine prison, but a house arrest. But you can imagine Paul. He had been arrested in Jerusalem, spent two years in Caesarea. Then he took that voyage to Rome, shipwreck, and finally arrived. And then placed in his own hard dwelling, as Luke tells us in the 28th chapter of the book of Acts. 
And from there, he wrote at least four letters, what we call the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the book of Philemon, at least those four. But in the book of Philippians, he made a very amazing statement. And this is, as he writes it, writes it he says this, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And if you would look at those words in the original language, when it says it's been given to you, the words can also be translated or can be translated, given to you as an act of grace. Isn't that amazing? Part of God's grace is not only to save us, yes, but to place us where we are, in the situation where we are, as difficult as it may be, as discouraging as it may appear. You're not there by an accident. You're there because God has placed you there. And it's an act of his trust in you that he's placed you there as it was an act of the government of the United States of America to place those pilots in their positions. No, they weren't, the, the United States the government didn't shoot them down or so forth, but because the government had faith in those men, put them in difficult positions, put them in places of danger because they trusted it. The fact that you and I are living in these days is to me the proof that God has trust in us and believes in us to put us exactly where he wants us. Well, this is a hard situation. I don't like it. It isn't fair. Oh, well, if I could just trade places with who should I trade places with? I think I'll trade places with Don Brubaker down there, okay? Because he doesn't have a problem in the world. His life is just wonderful. Well, we know that's not true. And I'm thank you for allowing me to pick on you, Don. But really, it has been granted to us. So as we celebrate Thanksgiving this year, can we do it in the spirit a biblical spirit of gratitude. Oh no, we're not going to forget the material things and family and other things. That's part of God's gift as well. But even greater than that is the privilege to know him and to serve him in difficult times. Can we do that? Is it in us? Is it in you? Is it in me? Well, that's, it's us. It's not you. It's not the preacher standing there. Now you've got to do this. No, no, no. It's us. Let us, let us do that by the grace of God. And I submit to you, if we would live that way, we would see changes. We would see people becoming interested. People being challenged by the gospel. So that's our challenge. Let us. Let's pray together. Father, how good you are to us.
How thankful that we have been placed at this time to do your will. In and of ourselves, Lord, we certainly are not capable. And unless, Lord, you you help us, we will fail. But, Lord, we have a great high priest. He's gone into heaven. He's making intercession for us. We have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And how thankful we are for them. Those who encourage us. Those who help us along. Yes, and those who admonish us when we need it. We're thankful for the body of Christ. So enable us, Lord, because of the many promises in your word. Let us have a true unfeigned faith. Let us have that constant hope that never wavers. And let us exercise our love one to another. We pray in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen.